This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey Dan, have you ever done any uh, like historical field tripping? Yeah, I have. We've been some day trippers to some field trips before. So in our program, I thought, you know, it's so important to think about how we learn outside the classroom, because that's where a lot of learning, historical learning, you know, geographic learning, a lot of our stuff we do outside. And so I'm really big on helping our teacher candidates think about how they can do that with their students. But I'm going to be honest, like I'm not an expert in this and I, and I don't have a ton of knowledge on what to do. But the, in short, what we did is we set up that they would go to local museums at a variety of choices. They can go here in, in Dallas. You can go to the Holocaust Museum, which they're opening a brand new, really nice Holocaust and Human Rights Center, um, which is really exciting in downtown Dallas. There's the JFK Sixth Floor Museum. The JFK Um, Sixth Floor? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, and if you know, so it's the book depository. Yeah, yeah, I figured that out. Obviously, I'm in Massachusetts, so we have the library. Yeah, there you go. And so if if you're in Dallas, I, I highly recommend, you know, you go to both of those. They're very interesting. And then there's some local museums that are really good downtown. And, and also then sometimes they'll they'll find like exhibits that are that are around. And really the assignment is to go in a group and we usually will have a group that goes experience the museum as you kind of normally would by kind of making note of, of what you learned there. I like for them to identify like at least one document there that they they could see as being a teachable document. Yeah. And then what someone suggested to me, which I should have thought of if I, you know, was more well versed in this, but at this point I should have known, was to also then then, you know, allow them to have like kind of a critique of the overall narrative of the museum, you know, Uh-oh. whose stories are it telling, whose stories does it center. And so that's kind of what we have them I've had them do recently is is go through that experience together. And then we have class conversations. I actually have them make a video KWL, like what they know about the museum, what they want to know. So they filmed that before. Oh, and then the learned at the end. Yeah. And then after they go to the museum, they do it. It's way more fun than a regular KWL chart, but it's a real simple way for them to kind of show their thinking. They share that. And then we have class discussions and it's been really interesting and we've learned a lot. I like to see what sources students identify as being important. And then their attempt to figure out the narrative is kind of dependent on how much they know about the history sometimes. But I say, if nothing else, look at who's represented, whose stories yeah. are represented. And the discussions are really interesting. And we kind of wade through the history through those discussions. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been it's been a learning process. And I've, I've relied on some of our smart social studies scholars who give me good ideas yeah. of, of kind of tweak it and make it a better um, overall activity for our teacher candidates. That's interesting. Sometimes I feel like, so I don't do too many field trips in general. I teach world history mostly. And they always say, oh, can you just take us to Paris? And that's kind of expensive. <laughs> and they always Paris. ask me if we can go tomorrow. <laughs> but yeah, I would I would like to, I don't know, learn how to do them a little bit better. I feel like sometimes as you know, teachers, we, like there's a lot of times people go on field trips and they do like the scavenger hunt. Which right. Is, which is cute. 
Yeah, didn't we already learn that not to do scavenger hunts? I think Lisa Gilbert in episode 58, when we talked about learning history outside the classroom, I think she, she gave us that lesson that, that scavenger hunts kind of are distracting almost, right? Because it's like this like trivia knowledge collection, but it almost distracts from the ways we really learn when we're at museums. I should probably re-listen to that episode. Yeah, she's wise. She has some real good wisdom. She and some good Twitter threads, if you ever check out her Twitter, because she's That's always doing good stuff there. So, yeah, but I think we have a lot to learn, and um, fortunately, we have a couple guests with us today who can probably add a lot more wisdom on this topic and help us learn what not only we can do, but what other people could do when they're taking their students on field trips. So we would like to welcome into the podcast Christine Barron and Sherry Sklarwitz. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Can each of you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds in education? Sure. So right now, so this is Chris Barron, and I'm uh, an assistant professor of uh, social studies and education at Teachers College, Columbia University. I have been teaching teachers how to teach for the better part of 15, somewhere between 15 and 18 years. Before that, I was a high school history teacher and um, museum educator. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I so I've actually been in all of the different places that and that allow that helps me actually see into the space where teachers are working with museums and what they're bringing from it and what they're not bringing from it. How did you end up doing both? Was that just a transition in your career, or did you kind of already have that interest while you were teaching? I no, I, I there was a cross country move. I was out in California. I set up, I taught high school in Massachusetts, and then I taught high school in California. And then on my way back, my certification had lapsed. And so I ended up working in a museum for, you know, while I was waiting for all my paperwork to go through. And I was in the education department at the Higgins Armory in Worcester, which is no longer there. And it was a medieval, it was medieval arms and armor. And, and it was, it was a great, really cool museum. And we had all these folks coming in on field trips. And it was so clear to me that the, that the teachers were expecting one set of things and the museum was delivering an entirely different set of things and neither of them were really speaking to the needs of each other. Oh no. Yeah, and I always joke that, you know, I'm a professional middle child. So I, I sort of see between both of those worlds and I began translating back and forth between teachers and museums. I'm an unprofessional middle child. I don't get paid for it at all. Yeah, well, it starts off as an unpaid position and then <laughs> I'm also like not a, a, as good of a middle child because my twin sister and I were only born eight minutes apart, so uh, I'm barely the middle child. Well, I'm pretty solidly so, and but it does <laughs> to translate between disparate groups, and it actually helped a lot, you know, in 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 seeing the difference between these these different professional groups and what their expectations were for going forward. Great. And so thanks for having us. So I started out as a seventh and eighth grade civics teacher in Somerville, Massachusetts. Oh, my goodness. I know where that is. Yeah. <laughs> Neighbors right close yeah. by. So then I ended up going on to do my doctoral work at Boston University in curriculum and instruction with a focus on civic education. I've always been interested in students' attitudes around civic education. Uh, And so after that doctoral work was done, I'm now the Associate Director of Student Programs at the Tisch College of Civic Life at Tufts. And so I work with our student programs team with an especial focus on evaluation and looking at student attitudes and how they shift and change over time. That's awesome. That sounds like a really cool role. Yeah, it is. It's an incredible place to be and work with amazing students who are doing really powerful work in communities. And that's what 
social studies work should be all about, right? So I think it speaks well to exactly what we're trying to do here. So um, the reason we're having you two on today, uh, besides the fact that you both have a lot of wisdom, both as um, in your incredible roles and as a middle, middle child, is that we would like to congratulate you on your new publication in Theory and Research in Social Education. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Congrats. This article is in Volume 47, Issue 1, which is the first issue of 2019. And the article is titled, Understanding What Teachers Gain from Professional Development at Historic Sites. Can you all tell us about this research? Sure. So this actually, uh, all of my research actually starts with the question of what are teachers learning from historic places? And I've been working on this since my own doctoral work. And the answer at this point is we still don't know. And part of that is because museums are, are an incredibly difficult pla places to understand. They haven't been theorized particularly well in terms of uh, learning spaces. The research on it, you know, I, term, I use the term in another paper, the previous research on it is what I've called a research archipelago. It's a series of these, these disconnected islands of information that don't really add up to a whole body of work when we're looking at, you know, what are people learning from this experience? There's all kinds of questions, you know, all sorts of information about interpreting the places and, you know, whose voices are being heard and not. But there isn't a really good understanding about what is happening in terms of learning at these informal learning spaces, particularly particularly for history. And that, that has to do with the way that history museums are different than other museums. You know, what you've got is a problem of singularity, that there's one place and there's only one place. And so everyone's desire to do the research on it is to dig deep on one place because, you know, is there any other place that's like Monticello? Well, no, not really. Like, it's unique. It's a singular thing. But because each of these places is singular, there's rarely any connection between them in terms of the research that talks about it. The big problem is then the, that it's a holistic experience. So it's a multi-layered artifact that presents holistically. So you have to figure out some meaningful way to break it down. And then the other problem is really that these are, they're, pro, they're posing, you know, social studies history in particular poses ill-structured problems to the learner. I, and I always use the example of the, the well-structured problem that the science museums get to use, which is... What makes an ocean wave wave? What makes an ocean wave wave? Yes, Boston Museum of Science, right? But if you think about, if you've ever seen the David Letterman's uh, bit that he used to do, Sing or Float, where he would have like a tank of water, you know, like Grinder Girl comes out with a tank of water, and they would throw something into a tank of water. And, you know, he and Paul would argue, like, is this going to sink or is it going to float? And what they're doing is they're, like, doing a science experiment around buoyancy on live TV. And it's good enough for, like, okay, well, it turns out a 10-pound bag of, of cement mix floats. Who knew? And then they go on and, you know, Tom Hanks comes on the next. Well, that is the, like, you can take that exhibit there and put it into a science museum, and it's going to happen 100 times out of 100, you're going to get the same result. But if you go to a historic place, if you ask a, a historic question like, was the Battle of Lexington and Concord really a battle, which is sort of the traditional, you know, that history line question, 100 people are going to have 100 different answers. And that depends on the information that they have, the subjectivities that they bring to the process, 
There are all kinds of complications when it comes to figuring out historic spaces as learning spaces for people generally, and more importantly, for teachers who are also then going to use it as a professional space. So it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like if I'm hearing you right, it's that the even if a teacher in a museum, like they figured out what to do in a single space, right, that that teachers aren't prepared to go to different places, right? Like we don't have kind of a pedagogy or an understanding of museums kind of as sites and what we do across them. Is that is that kind yeah. of make sense? Yeah, and, and it's because they, they that each one asks a different question and the question that it asks is both unique to the space but also is going to generate multiple possible outcomes. Unlike if you go to a science space, it's like you're it's always gonna sink or float. Tom Hanks is always gonna float, I think. Tom Hanks is always gonna float. He's he's a witch, he's made of wood. <laughs> I did think about your battle question and I thought about how Ralph Wiggum would answer that. Does anybody remember that from The Simpsons? Yeah. <laughs> how would he? The, the Super Super Nintendo Chalmers comes in to the school and and they're talking about a battle and Ralph Wiggum just goes, What's a battle? Right. And he's very upset that he does not know what a battle is. Aww. That's it. So he would have one set of answers. Hopefully other students would have would know what a battle is and be able to proceed from there. So prior knowledge is, of course, important. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit in this study, what what were you able to start, you know, uncovering and making sense of so that we have a, a, a better, more full understanding of historic sites and how you teach at them? Sure. So one of the things we were looking for, going back to that idea of the research archipelago, was instead of having these isolated bits of information, we needed something that was broad-based and allowed us to look holistically at what teachers were doing when they were in professional development situations. So this is like a week-long professional development summer institutes. And the methodology that fit most appropriately was Q methodology. And Sherry is our Q maven and can tell you all about why that it is amazing and how it's helped us figure out what we're doing. I'm on pins and needles. What is Q methodology? Yeah. <laughs> So Q method is defined as the quantitative study of subjectivity, uh, where subjectivity is defined as anything of political or social importance. And it's actually made specifically for small sample sizes. So I came across it during my dissertation research when I was looking at how attitudes of high school students can change after participating in a global citizenship course. And a traditional Likert scale showed that they didn't change at all. But qualitative interviews showed that they changed dramatically, like truly life-changing stuff. But the sample size was too small for the Likert scale to actually show anything. And it turned out that it was the tool, you know, that really wasn't able to capture. And so Q method is a way to really capture attitudes, which is subjective, you know, material in a quantitative way without losing this idea of the story behind where these attitudes come from. So it really takes into account attitudes, people's experiences and values uh, and how they play into allowing people to choose between what they're interested in and how they look at items of importance, in this case, professional development. And so this methodology really ended up being a good fit for the work at Monticello and Mystic um, within this study. And so Essentially, the way that Q method works says people are given a series of statements on actual tangible cards, and these statements range on a, a range of perspectives across a topic. And so really anything that people could think of, ideally, about a topic is what this would cover. And so then people are given these statements, and they're asked to rank them on a normal distribution curve. And so they have to choose the statement 
that they most strongly agree with and the statement that they least strongly agree with, and then all those other statements in between. And so this really differs from a normal Likert scale where you could have potato chips and ice cream and say that you like both of those things the same. But in Q method, you really have to say, no, really, you know, what is more like me? What do I like better? And you have to rank them accordingly. And another uh, piece of it is that in participating in this Q method study, you know, people really have to think about what is true for them based on what they actually do. So I was using the analogy of flossing. So you might really agree that flossing is a great idea, um, but do you do it? Right. It's great in theory, but how often do you floss? You know, is it something that really represents you or is it more kind of middle? Yeah. Flossing is kind of like quitting to smoke. Everyone wants to do it. Yeah. But whether you actually do it or not will depend on where you rank that item on the scale. That's that's a Mitch, a Mitch Hedberg joke, by the way. I should give credit. <laughs> I was when you first said Q methodology. I was originally thinking that it was like a bow tie that was going to turn into a camera, like ah. James Bond. It, well, I hope mm. you don't feel disappointed. This is no! also extremely exciting. I didn't yeah. understand how that would work. I was like, how is Q? Like, how is that going to work? But now this actually makes a lot more sense than my. It's actually very timely because I've been looking for a way to quantify Michael's opinions for years, and now I have a method for it. This is a method for it. Yeah. And so after each person ranks their own set of statements, all of the people's rankings, all the participants' rankings are correlated together. And the people who sort the items in a similar way group together in this correlation. And so each of those groupings of similar, of people who sort the items in a similar way is called a factor. And the researchers are the one who give a statement to the factor or, or a name to the factor based on the statements that fall in there. Is this methodology also used for helping people find like dating partners? <laughs> I think it could certainly be um, <laughs> a, a, a method that, that could help in that sense. I mean, one good thing is that it can be used. We used it in a pre-post design and others have used it as, as a pre-post. Um, but it can also it's more often used as, you know, a, a how people are looking at a specific topic at a given time. And so in thinking about teachers, you know, you might teach the same thing, you know, as you know, many times the same type of material, but depending on who's sitting in front of you in your class, they might perceive it in a completely different way. And so this is a way for teachers to really understand individual attitudes of the students who are in their class at any given time, along with the patterns of perspectives in a class. So it's a really neat way to look at both of those things. So how did Q methodology work for this study? The first thing that we did was develop the list of perspectives. And so we went through a, a long series of validation process to develop the statements where we came, we came up with a list of statements based on literature. And Chris can talk about that more in a minute. And after that, we taught the staff at Monticello how to use this tool and how to implement Q method. And then we worked with the participants at Monticello who were participating in the professional development to do this in a pre and post and then post post administration. So we actually used four different sets of frameworks that were developed by professional organizations. So we're looking at the content they were looking at, the pedagogy, specifically historical thinking and analysis, and then general professional dispositions. And so in order to, to look across, to make sure that what we were asking of these teachers connected to their professional lives, you know, we used these frameworks to help us develop the statements so that they weren't just sort of free-floating things out there in the world saying, you know, did you enjoy your time here? 
you know, we're asking questions like, the time I spent at Monticello makes me feel less confident that I know the whole story of Jefferson and his time. And that was correlated to one of the historical thinking standards in the C3 framework from NCSS. And partly what we were looking at was that the more confident you are about something, you know, the, 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 less, the more you know about something, the less confident you tend to be that you know more about it. <laughs> so, you know, so we're trying to get at all these little nuances about, you know, are you, are you learning skills or are you, you know, sort of, you know, are you a critically thinking of, you know, of approaching this site, clarifying, you know, another statement, clarifying what happened in the past and our interpretation of it are not the same thing. So these statements, which, you know, we tied all of them to these different frameworks so that they were things that were not only, that not only the field of teacher education broadly agreed was important, but that was something that was active in the teachers' lives because the, we also used the NCATE standards, uh, Satius and Morton, the big six historical thinking standards, the C3 framework, and then there's another one which I can't remember. But we made sure that it was attached to teachers' lives as well as the work that was actually happening at the historic site. So we weren't just developing these things out of thin air. The, the, we're really trying to ground it in teachers' lives. And that became actually a really important part of the development process, was that instead of saying we're going to situate this within museum education, we decided that, it, that teacher education and the lives of teachers was going to be the primary target to understand really what's the impact there. And that actually helped us a lot in terms of shifting what we were looking at to, be, to come from the teacher's perspective rather than from either the institutional perspective of uh, museums or the universities where we're doing the research. So I'm glad that someone's finally able to figure out whatever the hell it is you do in Monticello. Right. <laughs> That's yes. a Hamilton. Yeah, it is. Good one. <laughs> I've been waiting. I've been waiting. You were waiting for it? Oh. <laughs> That's another Hamilton reference. So what are some of the key takeaways that you that you came up with? So the first, the big one really is the importance of the sense of place. And that, you know, it was really kind of surprising how important that sense of place and the power of place was for teachers. That there was something, there's something resonant about being in a space that is different from learning in other places, which sounds like a fairly pedestrian finding. But the ways in which teachers were talking about how being in the place of helped them understand things like, you know, there's a story about Jefferson, uh, Jefferson and his daughter. His daughter ran the plantation when he was not there. So she, you know, she was in charge of, you know, 600 people, 500 of whom were enslaved. You know, she's running an, an actual, you know, working plantation, but the gender roles were so severe, uh, severely defined that she was not allowed to move her bed from one side of her bedroom to the other because Jefferson didn't like the, the arrangement, like it threw off his sense of balance of what the physical layout should be. So she wasn't allowed to move her bed despite all of her other qualifications because the gender roles were so severely drawn. And having, having something like that as an example of what people's lives were like was incredibly important and insight and uh, offered some real insight for teachers in a, and a way to get into the story and bring questions of gender into the discussion 
in ways that they previously hadn't been able to. One of the other big ones, you know, we were able to actually see how, like I said, we're looking at a, a research archipelago. And so what we were actually able to do is start to, you know, so build some bridges between these different isolated pieces and identify places where there has been some research and we can actually connect some research that's gone on in the classroom and sort of laboratory situations with what's going on at the historic site. So, for example, using the sense of place, one of the things that it really helped the teachers develop was a sense of the context of the time. And if you know anything about the historical thinking literature, contextualization has been one of the areas that's been really, really difficult to help people develop. And if one of the things that we can do going forward is focus on helping teachers see this place as context and what do they need to do in order to develop that context? What are the pieces that they need to take back with them to their classroom so that they can use that to help students develop context of the time? That's going to be a huge leap forward in our, both our pedagogical understanding, but also of our, our professional development. So there are all kinds of things like that where previously we're seeing, we're seeing these little patterns that emerged from these studies that, you know, we hadn't seen before. So it's, real, it's actually really exciting. I feel that we really saw that Q method was really an interesting way for both the museum staff and also the teachers themselves to participate in this work. You know, one of the questions that we asked as in addition to doing the Q, the Q method, it's called the Q sort when you actually rank the statements. And in addition to participating in the Q sort itself, each, te each teacher was asked an interview in a brief interview about the statements that they ranked the highest and the statements that they ranked the least like them to really find out about their extremes and why they ranked the statements the way that they did based on their own attitudes and experience. And we also asked them about what it was like for them to do this exercise and do this tool. We got some really positive feedback. You know, people really enjoyed engaging with these statements and thinking about the ways that they think about professional development in a way that they hadn't thought of before. And I think it really was a great conversation starter for them. And I think they saw it as a way that they could use this tool in their classroom uh, around the skills and tools that they were working on with their students. You know, it really serves as a great dialogue tool for students to think about issues in a new way and think deeply about why they think the way they do and then engage with others about those kinds of uh, that kind of new information that they may have found. This is really incredible research. What would be your takeaways that you would tell teachers if you were advising them on and and researchers on both how they can use museums well um, and historical sites well and how they can scholars can use Q methodology? Well, fortunately, we actually, <laughs> we're on a publication blitz right now. Uh, so by the end of this project, so this is actually a three-year, about $300,000 grant that we got from IMLS, uh, which is the only federal agency that, that supports education research in museums and libraries. So this, so it's a part of a national, research, national leadership grant program. And so we've actually done this over the course of three years. Right now, we, um, we have another article that's just come out in Journal of Teacher Education. We have other articles that are coming out in the Journal of Museum Education and so on and so forth. And so there's actually a lot of information that's coming out about this project um, and about this work. And it's really what, what I think the, the big thing that we're seeing are the ways in which we can both theorize museums and historic sites as learning spaces but also the ways in which we can make meaningful connections between 
the essential pedagogies and critical thinking that we have been trying to instill in our students and teachers and connect that more strongly to the pedagogical practices that are happening at museums and historic sites, both from the staff side and the, what the teachers are experiencing themselves. And that the museum educators themselves have really um, taken up the idea that they need to model these practices more clearly so that they can get, so that it, it's taken into the classroom more readily. So it's really, it's sort of like moving everything a little bit forward all at once. It's not like one big takeaway, it's, which is kind of fun. And on the Q method side, I think both for researchers and practitioners, there's so much applicability in the education, especially social studies realm. There's uh, open source software to be able to analyze Q method data for researchers that you know is easy to learn and use, and you get some really substantive data for small sample sizes on this very qualitative subject matter. And then for practitioners and teachers in the field, it's just been a really interesting way to get students to think about themselves and their attitudes and experiences and really understand the students in front of you at a given time because they really can vary on the ways that they're thinking about certain material. And so it's just a great way for teachers to get a sense of who's in the room and how they can best support them. Man, that's great research. I would love to be in the room where it happens when you you get that kind of research done. But you all have done... (laughs) (laughs) I had like three more lined up too. I was choosing between. I was also going to tell them after their blitz that uh, that it's time to take a break. Maybe you know, consider a trip upstate. Well, they are like they are writing like it. Hold on. Oh, what's that one? Oh, they're right, right, writing like they're uh, running out of time. Running out of time. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Um, we That's apologize. A- no, no. I actually we, we do the- this nonstop. No, no, no. What, one of the articles that the museum staff from uh, Monticello actually wrote, I had to, I had, they wrote in, to be in the room where it happens with the quotes and all that. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not academic language. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah, it, it happens a lot. Yeah, it's a pro. It's actually if you haven't seen that skit on what is it? It's there's there's a skit where it's like a disease that you have and you blurt out Hamilton lyrics at the mere reference of anything related to it. Real thing. Well, sometimes you're just the minded work work. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Um, I'm not going to do any more. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. We're happy to. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Now, obviously, you're going on a bit of a writing blitz. So where can our listeners find you and all of your work and upcoming work online? Okay, so online, there is a project website. It's called teachersinsights.org. It's off of the, or you can search it off of the Monticello website. It is also a notation at the bottom of all of our papers. The other thing is because these are grant funded. All of the papers that we are writing are open source. And if you just, if you go to my faculty page at Teachers College, Columbia University, Christine Barron, you can see really, you know, the links are there. It's all open source. And we're happy to share these and particularly internationally. This is one of the reasons why we're doing open source so that we're not stuck behind paywalls, because this is really good information that you know, we're hoping starts a lot of new conversations about what it is that's really happening in these professional development programs at these wonderful sites. It's almost as if those paywalls shouldn't exist for anyone. Yeah, you think? Yeah. Oh, man, just like Ronald Reagan said, tear down those paywalls. 
Nice. He didn't like paywalls. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. It's probably not. Yeah. I think it's. He liked jelly beans, that's all I know. So thank you again so much for joining us today. We definitely hope to continue the discussion online, and we'll uh, take a break and go visit your website to learn more about these projects. So again, thank you. Thank you. And remember, at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing and learning. If you're doing some creative in education or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook in that mystery place. And, of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And please do so. History has its eyes on you. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42ThinkDeep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing signing off. off.